Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're hearing from a small independent publisher based in London in the UK. The Mainstone Press publishes beautifully crafted books and limited edition prints on a range of British artists who worked in the first half of the 20th century. Artists such as Eric Revillius, Edward Borden, Paul Nash and John Piper. To book collectors and lovers of eye-catching dust jackets and sumptuous illustrations, these artists have a loyal following. But let's meet our guest, Tim Mainstone, who obviously runs Mainstone Press. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Richard. It's very nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So um, perhaps you could start at the beginning and tell us how did Mainstone Press begin? Well, it began with a lucky discovery. I was trying to track down a wood engraving by Eric Revillius that I'd seen in an old book. The engraving's called Afternoon Tea and shows a woman walking down a garden path uh, towards a table on which sits a rather magnificent teapot. The engraving had been commissioned in the 1930s by London Transport for Green Line coaches. And I got a, an appointment to visit the Transport Museum archive in Covent Garden uh, to see if they had the original block from which I could hopefully make a print. It turns out that the block had actually disappeared during the war. Uh, all the rooms in the, in the building have small fireplaces and it was possibly mistaken as firewood when the heating system broke down. What I did discover though was a rather intriguing set of guard books. These contain printed proofs of newspaper advertisements from the 20s and 30s, produced by the Kerwin Press. And a number of these featured the work of Revillius and his friend Edward Borden. What Sorry. do you mean by a guard book? Oh, well, uh, a guard book, it's a sort of, I didn't know what it was. It's an official name that uh, it contained printed proofs of advertisements in this context, which were going to be put in newspapers, in let's say daily, you know, morning and evening newspapers. Yeah. So it would show the typographic and image layout of these ads. And these were all collated in these books. Does okay, that make sense? Right. Yeah, right, carry on. So uh, what was interesting was that, you know, I was looking for these images, and which you, uh, you know, these Borden Revillius images, and, um, what I discovered was that they were part of these advertisements and the advertisements have just the most incredibly beautiful written advertising copy, encouraging Londoners to use the underground to visit museums or football matches or to hop on a coach and go rambling in the countryside. And I remember thinking, wow, these would make a great book. And um, although I didn't know anything about book publishing, uh, I was helped by the curator, Oliver Green, at the London Transport Museum, uh, the writer Alan Powers and designer Brian Webb. And we created our first book in 2006 and with it was born the Mainstone Press. Uh, we were very lucky to launch at the uh, Fry Art Gallery in Saffron Walden, which is home to a lot of work by Revillius and Borden. Uh, the book was called Away We Go. And after that, I got the book bug and couldn't stop. So what were you before you became an independent publisher? I worked, uh, I had a, a, a company called Shawwood Educational, 
which um, we worked with uh, a company where we imported um, fine art reproductions, prints, posters uh, from America, from a company called New York Graphic Society and Shorewood Fine Art, who were, who were based in Connecticut. And these were posters that were used to, um, that could be used in schools to teach history of art. So I used to put together packs for schools and we'd run events, getting people to look at and talk about paintings. Right. So you knew art, but you didn't necessarily know book publishing. Well, yes. And embarrassingly, I'd, um, so when I was a student, I studied at Oxford Polytechnic and did um, a course in art history and book publishing. Um, but I never, while I was interested in art history, I never really considered that I could or would become a book publisher. Does that make sense? It um, does. It does. But anyway, but... when I was 40, <laughs> 2006, it suddenly, it suddenly hit me like a, a lightning bolt. So uh, the two things came together. And that it hit you that art and books actually marry very nicely. Yes, I wish I'd realized it sort of, you know, 10 years before. But uh, yes, um, uh, it was a good realization. Yeah. OK. So why do you focus on this group of uh, artists that were active in the first half of the 20th century? Well, I guess it, it started with, I mean, we've done a lot on Revilius and Borden. And I think what, I mean, doing, the, doing that first book was possibly the most terrifying thing I've ever done, because you do it and then you spend a lot of time, well, I spent a lot of time thinking, God, no one's going to want to buy these, buy these books. But um, people really seem to like them. And, and what I've noticed over the last two decades is that, you know, there's been more and more interest in British interwar art. And I think these artists were ignored for a long time, but people suddenly are just really enjoying rediscovering them. Um, what I particularly like, I, I don't know, are you familiar with the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? I am. I had the Puffin edition as a kid, with, oh, along fantastic. with all the other ones, and read it again and again and again yeah, and again I was, and again. I was really crazy about the Narnian Chronicles. And um, there's a great scene in the beginning of that book where um, the kids are in a bedroom and they're looking at a, a painting, I think it is, of a, a ship. And suddenly the ship comes to life and sort of acts as a portal and they're literally sucked into the painting and into this other place. And when I first saw the work of Revilius and Borden, I kind of felt that that sort of sensation. Um, it's strange, but when I when I saw the work, I wanted to go and experience those landscapes firsthand. I wanted to catch a train to, um, you know, furl, uh, walk in the South Downs, hop on a bike and discover the willow grove that Borden painted near Great Bardfield. I'd never experienced that before. And I think what makes a really good artist, in my opinion, is that you're forever changed after seeing their work. Uh, they make you look at things in nature you've never noticed, which are right in front of you. And from that point on, you can't stop seeing them. So let's do something very hard. Let's try and describe their style in words, since this is radio. And I was looking at some of the, the prints on your site. Right. And the words words that come to my mind are like warm, English. It's quite hard to describe it. Not really realism, but there's some realism in there as well. How, how would you do it? 
So actually, I, I hope you don't mind, but I on my um, Instagram post, I asked this question. I asked if people could describe the work of kind of Revilius and Borden in a, in a couple of words. And uh, the one that came up most was quintessentially English. And right. other words that were used were things like ethereal, pastoral, melancholic, uh, timeless, familiar, wistful. Yeah, wistful England. I think there's something that, that they're instantly recognisable. But what I think is really intriguing is that um, they're not, you know, everything is not quite as it seems in them. There's something else going on other than just a picture. You know, um, there's a lovely one called the num number 29 bus, which shows this, you know, abandoned bus in a field sort of floating dreamlike. So, I mean, you could look at it originally and just think it's a bus, but then there's something more. There's just something, it's not sinister, but there's just something else there. So um, we're looking at the, the these prints and these pieces of art 70 years later, maybe 80 years later. Um, but at the time when they were creating these art, this art, do you think the artists knew that everything that they were showing was going to disappear fairly quickly or many things that they were showing was going to fade away but i mean they didn't know it was an awful big war coming no absolutely i mean I, I i think a good book to think about this there's a book called high street which was published by country life books i don't I, are you familiar with it i am i have a facsimile of it oh fantastic so it was published in 1938 and um, the illustrations are by Revilius with a text by Jim Richards. And I think I was, you know, when you asked this question, I was looking at the, we did a, we did a, um, a, a sort of book about the book called The Story of High Street. And Jim Richards read, readily acknowledges that the world was changing and that certain types of shops were disappearing with uh, the onset of kind of mechanization. And he he recognised that um, that the the character, the sort of personal nature of local shops, was disappearing. And with with you know more mainstream shops that you know had bigger branches, they used standardised fascias and shop units. And he felt that while this offered better goods to people, it made our high streets much duller. So. There was that sense of change um, in the book that in the book, the story of High Street. We set out the, the idea for the book came about when we tried to locate in 2008 what had happened to all 24 shops. And obviously, you're told the name of some of them, but most we're just told they were based on real shops. And what was interesting, I mean, it took a lot of work, but we discovered that two of those 24 shops were exactly were still running from the same venue with the same business. Do you know what wow. those were? Was one a fishmonger? No, it wasn't a fishmonger. Um, one, I'll tell you, one was a cheesemonger right. uh, on, on German Street called uh, Paxton and Whitfield. And the other one was a clerical outfitters in Victoria. And when we clerical discovered it... You mean like like yes. uh, priests robes yeah so they made they make kind of robes for I, if you look at the if you look at the um image um there there are um 
as I said, it's this shop and there are clerical robes in the, in the right. window and then there's someone standing behind a counter. But we, we discovered this and then we went to the location. The, the shop was actually called Whipple and Company. And <laughs> was, Sorry, that's quite not, funny. I know. Yeah, it had not changed in all that time. It, it was literally as if the window display was exactly the same and I could have sworn that the person behind the counter was exactly the same. Wow, it sounds like... And if you go... If you go yeah, sorry. Sounds like walking into a Mr. Ben book. It really, it, it really felt like... Honestly, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Uh, the cheesemonger, Paxton Whitfield, has been there for ages and it, it's on German Street. So... Um, you know, near Piccadilly, and it's right. fantastic if you're if you're a fan of cheese. I am a fan of cheese, yes. So I guess I guess uh, well, you should definitely go next time you're over. Um, but so obviously, certain shops have certain shops are dying out. There was a lovely one called Le Plumassier, uh, which was a sort of um, you know shops that there were shops that sort of stuffed animals and did things with feathers and stuff. And I think that disappeared with the onset of wars some of the some of the places were bombed so i think they were so they chose shops that they found particularly interesting or that looked you know that had a, a, a certain look about them yeah um and so then i guess there must have been a little bit of nostalgia yeah there. yeah so this but was roughly 1937 38 yeah 38 that's right yeah but you remember that a lot of shops i mean this is something i I've become, ever since doing that bit, I've become a bit obsessed about shop front. Um, but uh, a lot of the buildings remain. And, you know, sometimes in London, you'll see really old facias um, uh, for, I don't know, um, you know, uh, a paint shop or something like that. But it's actually a, a hairdresser's or something. So it's always nice when you see that. So the life of the shop continues, but actually what's being sold changes. Right. So since we're talking about uh, Eric Revilius and you said that interest appears to be growing in him, I believe you're off to um, see a, a film about him this evening, a new film. I know, it's fantastic. It's called um, Eric Revilius, Drawn to War. Uh, the director is uh, Margie Kinmuth, um, and it's got a, a sort of stellar cast of, of people talking about, about Revilius and his work, and there are um, quotes from letters. And I think it really it really puts him on the map. I mean, you know, he it's it's incredible when you look at the range of work that he did, from wood engraving to painting to uh, lithography, that he did so much in such a short period of time. Because you know, tragically, he lost his life in 1942 on an air sea rescue mission in Iceland. But I think um, this film, uh, I I was very lucky to actually I saw it. Um, I've seen it once, and uh, I'm. I've been invited back to the preview, so I'm really looking forward to seeing it a second time. Uh, we had an event yesterday, a Q&A for a, um, an art fair that I run, and the, the director and an art dealer about the film. So there's, I think there's a lot of interest, and it's going out to cinemas um, throughout the UK, so uh, it should be good. It should indeed be good. That uh, I think it will help win a new audience for, um, for Revilius. I hope so, yes. And, yeah. you know, the newspaper reviews, it's amazing how many people are, are saying, gosh, you've never heard of Revelius, you know. And so, yes, I think it will. Right. So um, back to your business. Um, 
who is the target audience for, for your books? Who, who do you envision, or perhaps you even know, who, who reads them, who, who, uh, who acquires them? Well, I think it's changed a lot. You know, in the early days, um, it felt like, you know, people interested in, I was very excited when I discovered the work of Revelius and Borden, but it did seem like a small sort of secret society. Uh, there was a, a brilliant group called the Eric Revelius Appreciation Society, um, which was a group of quite elderly people who produced these amazing photocopied newsletters, um, a bit like music zines, and they sort of shared news about the, the artist. So, yes, I think in those times, you know, from sort of 2006, uh, it was, yeah, quite sort of old people. But I've just noticed that interest, James Russell, who we're very lucky to be working with, the writer, has, um, has curated a lot of exhibitions on Revelius and Borden. And, you know, with each new show, there's a, a new audience. Uh, I was at a, a, an event in Cambridge the other day, and I couldn't believe it. There were um, a lot of students from the MA in, uh, it's an illustration course uh, in, in Cambridge, Anglia Ruskin University, which attracts potential illustrators from all over the world. And they were just raving about uh, Revelius's submarine lithographs. So I think it's, you know, it's a it's a real mix from young and old and uh certainly the talk we had yesterday um lots of lots of people lots of different ages so brilliant that's really interesting. so those submarine lithographs that was from when revilius was a war artist correct and that was one of his assignments showing what a submarine looks like really yes that's correct um and he he you know he got to work in a submarine um and he, I think up to that time, he, he sort of tried to avoid painting uh, people. You very rarely see them. When you do see the people, they look a bit sort of doll-like. Um, but this, you know, you couldn't avoid people on the submarine. So this was, uh, I think, sort of 40, 41, that sort of time. Um, and they're remarkable, you know, illustrations in terms of light. And he'd, he'd only just started doing autolithography at this time. And um, yeah, they're, if you haven't seen them, they're absolutely remarkable images. I think it was going to be a sort of part of a book. Um, in the end, he he ended up, I think, sub, or the, I, I think the I think the war artist uh, the war artist committee were going to pay for it. In the end, he himself. But they're hugely collectible now if you're lucky yeah. enough to find one in a junk shop. Yeah. So with um, Mainstone Press, how do you decide what you're going to publish? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think all our books begin with a quest or a challenge. Um, and the books that I make are usually ones that I'd like to buy, but no one else has made. Um, a classic example, we did a book called The Lost Watercolours of Edward Borden. And I'd been speaking to a gallery owner about why there were never any exhibitions showing Borden's 1930s watercolours. Um, and he said, because they were bought by private collectors in 33 and 38, um, it was impossible to trace them. And I remember thinking, as soon as he said that, I remember thinking, I bet they can. And I don't know why that just really, that really set me off. So uh, I hired a genealogist and we were able to get sight of the purchase ledgers of both shows. They were, they were both in London, one at Zwemer Gallery, one at Leicester Galleries. And each purchase ledger had a name and the first line of address, that was it no town and 
the, the genealogist was just amazing, Madeline Dickens. And we obviously all the people that had bought the work had died. And so we were having to trace their their children or grandchildren. And we wrote to them and said, you know, we'd, we'd like to do this book on, I, I realized at that stage, I, I wanted to do a book on Borden's 30s art. We wrote to people and we just had this fantastic response. People were really enthusiastic about it. So that is, I don't know, that probably sounds quite a complicated way about doing a book, but it was it was great fun. And we made these extraordinary discoveries. Um, there was a painting that uh, Borden did uh, in the 30s, which somehow ended up in the film Dial M for Murder above the fireplace. And no one's really sure how it got there. But, you know, each painting was a sort of a bit like a story like that. So it's great fun. It's knowing when to sort of draw the line when you're not going to find any more. Right. And, um, yeah, so usually if I decide what to do. It's usually based on some sort of quest. Um, and then you have some sort of, like with your very first story, you've got some detective work to do. Yeah, I love, I God, in another world, I'd love to be, I suppose it is really there is an element of being a sort of art detective i really love all that stuff so right. it's such good fun so do you work closely with the estates of these artists absolutely i mean you know when we started uh, obviously eric revillius's work was in copyright copyright last 70 years from the the death of the artist um the both the revillius and the borden estate were incredibly helpful and supportive um you know, and um, I'm very thankful to to both of those. Um, sometimes you have to um, actively go out and find out who the estate um, belongs to. So I'm I'm working on a trilogy about uh, Parisian shop fronts. It's called the Boutique Trilogy, about French shop fronts, fairground stalls, and and French writers in in 1920s Paris. And um, these are by there are two artists that we're featuring. One by um, someone called Lucien Boucher and someone else called Henri Guillac. And we had to, and French copyright law is incredibly complicated. So we we had to trace the descendants um, of those people. And it took a really, really long time. But we got there. Um, I, I work with a brilliant um, researcher in Paris. Um, yeah, and so we, we found the estates. And, and you know, you do all that work. There's still no guarantee they're going to say yes. But thankfully, they did say yes. So, uh, and similarly with, I guess, with writers' estates. So on this in this trilogy, we had to contact the um, Pierre Macaulain uh, estate. He wrote text to accompany um, a couple of these books, and so we wanted to get that translated. And um, so we had to contact them. And again, thankfully, they were they were happy for us to go ahead. Right. So isn't it a little bit of a departure moving to? Uh, Paris themed or French themed books? Well, I I, th I have this theory and um, obviously James James Russell, he's, he's written a lot of our books. We discussed the possibility that Eric Revillius, uh, we know that Eric Revillius and Edward Borden both were influenced by what was going on um, in France. Um, there, was a, there was a brilliant journal called Arte, I'm probably going to get this wrong, Arte Métier Graphique. And um, so we know that they were looking at artists from the 20s. Boucher did these incredible shop front and fairground stall illustrations. And I, I think, we think that 
uh, Revilius was influenced by Boucher, who did these shop fronts in 1924. Uh, is it a departure? I don't think so, just because I'm, I'm crazy about shop fronts. I just commissioned actually an artist called Eleanor Crow, um, who's a great, uh, a great painter and watercolorist, to do a shop front that I love in London called Arthur Beale, which was a, a ship's chandler's in Covent Garden, which had been there for 500 years. And I guess because of the various reasons, um, I'm happy to grow. So um, she did a painting of that. But yeah, I keep I keep being ever since we did High Street, I'm drawn to to shop fronts and shop right. windows. I see a lot of books about books and books about bookstores. So I, I would say that bookstores are still being painted and drawn for <laughs> for bibliophiles. Um, absolutely on, on an international scale right i'm sure that's right yeah i think that's probably because there's still an independent streak that there's not so many chains well there are chains but there are plenty of independents with their own look and feel that uh that appeal to the you know the person who can't walk past a bookstore without absolutely i'm one of those people actually and obviously um i spend a lot of time on abe books increasingly on um, abe.fr which is the french site and um uh has a fantastic range of things so yeah i can't i can't resist i can't resist <laughs> a book. my my kids when they were very young um learned to when they learned to recognize uh, bookshops and art galleries and usually would start screaming if they thought i was about to <laughs> <laughs> that you have to go in yes always <laughs> <laughs> wow uh okay uh one last question then tim and it's the one we asked to everyone and that is what book or books are you currently reading well i have just started reading a book called um kolkata city of print which i bought uh, locally from lcba which is um the London Centre for Book Arts in East London. Um, I've always been fascinated by the city and its connection to books and printing. So I'm looking forward to that. But I guess most of the books I've been reading lately relate to uh, my French trilogy, um, books on the circus and the funfair. Um, I just bought one actually on Abe um, by someone called Gabriel Moray called Fate Foraine de Paris from 1947. Um, it's il uh, illustrated by uh, an amazing illustrator called Emilio Grau-Sala. Uh, it's an absolute thing of beauty, large format with incredible lithographs and type. Um, my school French makes reading it slightly slow, but um, it's very easy to get distracted by the pictures. So um, I'm enjoying that as well. Do you, um, do you read any books that, that are not illustrated or, or, or are not about prints? <laughs> Um, I'm sure it's okay do, to say yes. no. That's okay. <laughs> I do like picture books. Um, yes, of course I do. Um, I, I must do. Yes. I just can't think of any at the moment. The Narnia ones. <laughs> yeah, I've always got time for that. I've, I've always enjoyed those. Yeah, yeah. I totally understand. They are very nicely illustrated, though. Yeah, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I totally understand the idea of the appeal of being sucked into a picture um i'm sure i'm sure lots of people relate to that that story you told us all right uh 
That's all we have time for today then. So I want to uh, thank Tim Mainstone from the Mainstone Press for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. It has indeed. Uh, you can find books published by Mainstone Press on Abe Books, and you can find more information on themainstonepress.com, themainstonepress.com. Uh, my name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.